Hi, this is the Light in the Attic podcast. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jackie. And in this episode, we're going to tell you about a record label that existed in Denver, Colorado from 1971 to 1973. This is the story of Tumbleweed Records, the little label that could until it couldn't. And summer's almost gone, my love. Winter's almost here. Jack Frost is just around the corner. Soon summer is a goner. Let our love stay the same, sweet as spring. Part one. All shook up. Our story begins at 6.01 a.m. on February 9th, 1971 in Los Angeles. Just before dawn, a massive shock rippling out of the mountains just north of the San Fernando Valley, shaking most of Southern California like an angry parent shakes a screaming child. Bill Simzik woke up on the floor of his bedroom. He'd been thrown from his bed by the violent 6.6 magnitude Silmar earthquake that killed 64 people. It was there on the floor at 6 a.m. that Bill finally decided to take up his friend Larry on an offer to move to Denver and start a record label. Basically, the reason Tumbleweed even started was because of an earthquake. Now it was 6 in the morning, I was in bed, but then the next thing I knew, I'm on the floor. He threw me right out of bed. Scared the hell out of me. And Larry. Eight days later, we lived in Denver with no job. Colorado, Colorado, beautiful place that you are. Bill and Larry were music industry buddies, both having worked at various Los Angeles labels with various different artists. Bill, who then had a big head of curly brown hair, a wife, and two young kids, was a sound engineer. I would watch Bill work on the board. And, I, and it was always fascinating to me because he's got these long, he's got these long fingers, and he would be working on those, on those dials, and he would be, you know, I, I knew enough about engineering that I knew that he was the best that I'd ever been around. Larry, an intense-looking guy with a full red beard, thick-rimmed glasses, and cowboy boots, was more on the business side of things. Though given their backgrounds, Bill and Larry were both suited to wear either creative or business hats. Bill had produced B.B. King's The Thrill Is Gone and signed The James Gang. Larry had worked with The Doors, Love, Joe Cocker, and Cat Stevens in various capacities. But Larry had a dream. I knew when I was a kid I wanted to have my own record label. He was fed up with L.A.'s party scene, corrupt business tactics of the music industry, and, like Bill, deathly afraid of earthquakes. He had been asking Bill for months to start a new label in Denver, where they would be the only game in town and where they would have the freedom to be creative. Basically, I talked Bill into the two of us starting a record company. We're we're not going to have two sets of books and we're going to play fair with the artist. The artist is going to be what this is all going to be about. It only took the earth shaking beneath Bill's feet for him to finally agree. Just eight days after the Silmar quake, a label man and a burgeoning engineer touched down in Denver, jobless, but not for long. Part 2, Rocky Mountain Highs and Lows. 
Those early days in Denver, Larry and Bill had nothing and no income for quite a while. Bill got a job at a local radio station, while Larry went to meeting after meeting trying to secure funding for the label. Luck finally came when Larry nabbed an appointment with David Juddelson, president of Gulf & Western, a huge conglomerate that encompassed Paramount, Famous Music, and other businesses. He said, you have 45 minutes to make your story here. Six hours later, we signed an agreement to fund uh, Tumbleweed. With Larry and Bill eager and well-connected, Gulf and Western saw an opportunity to capitalize on the counterculture movement of the 60s. They were hoping that this new label might score the next Janis Joplin or Jimi Hendrix. But from the start, Larry and Gulf and Western didn't exactly see eye to eye. The suits seemed offended by Larry's idealism and also perhaps by his bristly negotiating tactics. They really hated, not Bill, but they hated me. After Juddelson and I signed the agreement to agree, the next day, uh, Juddelson had to fly to Paris, and so he said, I want you to come in in the morning. You're going to meet all of the, the vice presidents of Gulf Western, and they want to meet you, and blah, blah, blah. So I walk into the room, and they have this circle of chairs, and in the middle of the, of the circle is one chair. These are vice presidents, you know, and we had just agreed to agree for all this money, and I mean, everything's going to be okay. And so after a while, I, got, I picked up the chair, and I moved it to the side, and I said, you know, when I talk to somebody, I like to look at them in the eyes. What happened is everything stopped, mm-hmm. and these guys just got up and walked out. I didn't know how I was going to tell Bill that we no longer had a, a label, and uh, that's not what happened. Bankrolled through famous music and back home in balsam-scented Denver, Larry and Bill settled on the name Tumbleweed. We wanted something that was indicative of the West in general and Colorado in particular. Part 3, A Bitchin' Disco Time. Bill and Larry soon brought on Rob Kunkel, a young music lover who'd just planted himself in Denver after hitchhiking across the country. Kunkel was 20 years old when he got involved with Tumbleweed, first helping secure offices in an old antebellum house at 1368 Gilpin Street. Cars were purchased, equipment assembled, the basement transformed into a graphic arts studio, papers finalized. A friend of mine owned it, and he bought it as an investment for $54,000. Now, the house was very dilapidated. This was in 1970. He painted the entire place, put shag carpeting on every floor. It had fireplaces in every room. It was a really cool house. I mean, one of those old mining mansions, you know. Tumbleweed next needed staff, so Bill and Larry brought aboard secretaries Donna Rabbit and Bonnie McAvoy, Willie Seltzer and Bob Ruttenberg, who handled promotions and shared an office draped in black flocked wallpaper. Funny story, Ruttenberg became the first person in the record industry to be busted in a metal detector with six ounces of marijuana. The incident made Rolling Stone magazine's random notes that year. But drugs weren't just party fuel, they were bargaining chips. Other label staff included Daniel Mainzer, photographer and self-described flea on the tail of the dog, Alan Lardo Blazek, an engineering apprentice under Bill and former army cook who would whip up label lunches most afternoons, and lastly, Aaron Schumacher, the art director. 
his design for Dewey Terry's album Chief would earn the label its only Grammy nomination. The vibe at the Tumbleweed House was less business and, as Mitch Kemp said, really about the music. Everybody was into um, one, the music. Um, it was more of a family. There wasn't a lot of hierarchy as far as, okay, you have to report to this person, you have to report to that person. Everybody was also into having fun. With the fruitless Vietnam War still raging overseas, everyone was searching for his or her own slice of utopia. Here's Michael Stanley. You know, the, the record business back then was the wild, wild west. I mean, people were making it up as they went along, including the major labels. But then, you know, the fact that these little independents started was pretty cool. And they obviously had a sensibility that was, you know, prevalent at that time. They weren't a big corporate uh, machine. It was, you know, a couple of about five people in a, in a, house, a little house, big house in Denver smoking, smoking pot and making records. So I was like, well, this is great. You know, it was a whole hippie time. There was always people wandering in and out of the, the offices there. Some of them wearing shoes, some of them not wearing shoes. Remember waking to the truth and light To feel the presence of another life Deep within the seed, the spark alive My thoughts move only in the past Kunkel remembered long days of lounging in Larry's office reading poetry. Long before you were born. The night began eventless as I moved through the drinks and sighs, when an elder man sat down with me and looked straight into my eyes. His face yellowed and waxen, hands bony and crustacean. He quaffed his draft of ale and proceeded with this dissertation. In the two and change years that Tumbleweed was active, they put out nine LPs by all kinds of artists. We wanted to do a lot of homegrown artists, and so, you know, I would say about maybe half of the people that we signed were from the Colorado area or were, you know, well, visited quite, quite often. Walking down the highway, heading for the city. Rob Kunkel acted somewhat as an A&R guy and brought several of the artists to the label, including Danny Holian, Dewey Terry, and Pete McCabe. Kunkel, who had a lovable, larger-than-life personality, was basically the glue that held it all together. It was Kunkel who first introduced Danny Holian to Larry and Bill. I first met Danny in Denver. He had come from Minnesota and was living in, out in the black part of town in a real run-down fucking place. And I immediately, when I heard him, said, this guy is absolutely fucking His outstanding. was a square-jawed Minnesotan with corn-fed looks whose self-titled release would prove to be the label's most successful effort, with his breakthrough single, Colorado, reaching number 66 on the Billboard charts in 1972. 
The success may have been a bit much for an introvert like Holian, who was really only in it for the music. Terry was another friend of Rob Kunkel's and had previous success as a performer, first with his doo-wop act, The Squires, and then in a duo with Don Sugarcane Harris, known as Don and Dewey. Don and Dewey recorded several incredible tracks that later became hits covered by other performers, but they never made it big. Dewey recorded his only solo album, Chief, nominated for a Grammy for Best Packaging, with Tumbleweed in 1972. He worked as a warehouseman in a, in a record place. That's how I met him. Everybody would say, well, if you need a record, go down and talk to Terry. So I always called him Terry. One day somebody says to me, go talk to Dewey. I said, who's Dewey? And he said, you know, the black guy in the warehouse. I said, I thought his name was Terry. He said, yeah, it is, Dewey Terry. I said, Dewey Terry, the songwriter? The guy goes, I don't know. So I run down to Dewey, I said, are you Dewey Terry, the guy who wrote uh, Farmer John? He said, yes, I am. I said, that's the first record my band ever played. Pete McCabe was a Denver native who Kunkel also brought to Tumbleweed after having seen him perform at a talent night in town. He's as good as one of those guys from, uh, you know, Tin Pan Alley. He's that kind of a writer. He's not just your run-of-the-mill guy. Even me, I don't consider myself in his league by any means. Send your measurements that he may see. Kunkel dubbed McCabe a one-man Beatles. Simzik called McCabe the oddest songwriter in the world. When his album went to press, What is a McCabe was etched into the vinyl. Then there was Michael Stanley, a Heartland rocker from Cleveland whose band Silk, Bill had discovered during the same weekend he'd signed the James Gang. Bill recognized talent in Stanley, the group's songwriter, so much so that he later recruited him for a solo record, which would launch Stanley's career. That self-titled album contained Rosewood Bitters, one of Stanley's best-known tracks, and featured Todd Rundgren on keys. He came up and he said, uh, he introduced himself and said, Hi, I'm Bill Simzik, I'm a record producer from New York, gave us his card. I'd like to talk to you about uh, making a record. When you start a, a band in high school or do this thing like that, you know, you, the whole goal was to make a record. And if you, if you made a record, that was like, you know, I could have died a happy person. Like, oh, I'm a guy got to make a record. I'm a professional. By the time I was 21, I had two records, and that was pretty amazing. Another Tumbleweed release by artist Rudy Romero was rumored to have an uncredited George Harrison playing on guitar. 
highly doubt that that actually happened. I think it would have been a much bigger uh, story at the time if, if uh, that had been true. Arthur G. was a Canadian and a self-described good hippie whose introspective folk rock was Tumbleweed's first release. At just three years old, Arthur G.'s musical fate cemented when his mother saw him playing violin in her dreams. He eventually graduated from the violin to the guitar and joined the shaggy-haired ranks of the era, penning warm and kaleidoscopic songs perfect for dropping acid on a beach somewhere. He was also the only artist to have two releases on the label. Tumbleweed released an album by well-established bluesman Albert Collins. Musicians ranging from Jimi Hendrix to Canned Heat to Robert Cray have all cited Collins as having a major influence on their style. In the end, Kunkel himself finally got a chance to record an album of his own, and it wound up being Tumbleweed's final release. The result unfortunately saw few sales, but was truly a treasure musically. Abyss falls somewhere in the vicinity of Van Dyke Park's song cycle, simple songwriting bolstered by epic production. Produced by jazzman Ed Michelle, Abyss features a host of jazz players as well as the LA Symphony. The album is a melange of moody pop and sweeping piano ballads with a handful of snappy jazz moments. According to Kunkel, his album was, quote, the most ecstatic thing that could ever happen to a young man. I knew I was no Elton John, but I knew this was my shot and I was lucky to have it. Part 4. A Tumbleweed in the Wind While the music Tumbleweed released was brilliant and diverse, things weren't going as well as Larry had dreamed. Gulf Western pulled the plug on the studio they'd promised Bill in their contract, and that was just the first sign of trouble. Relationships with the executives had grown fraught, with Larry constantly at odds with Paramount over distribution. It got to be, it got to be really, really difficult because when your distributor First of all, they're incompetent, and second, they, they don't like you. I was pressuring them to get our records into the store. Further disagreements with Gulf Western halted production on Stanley's record, which was pushed back a year. And then there was a six-month hiatus where nothing happened. Through all this, Larry continued flying to New York for contentious meetings. We would go and we would have radio airplay on two or three stations in a market, and then we'd try to go to record stores, and there were no records in the stores. They were clueless, fearless and clueless. <laughs> Larry went to war with them many times. He was the dad. We were the kids in the playroom in the studio. Larry was the one that had to fight those good fights, and, and sometimes we made a little progress, and most times not. Shortly after Kunkel's album release in 1973, Tumbleweed dissolved almost literally overnight. We just could not get sales. That's, that's a death knell. <laughs> Every 
accomplished, we basically accomplished on our own without a whole lot of help from them. In their final meeting, Juddelson instructed Larry to fire his staff and keep the remaining money for himself, as Gulf and Western was planning on dissolving its music division, never mind the contract they'd signed. A futile name-calling match ensued between the two, and a broken Larry departed Gulf and Western for good. No good deed goes unpunished, goes the saying. And with the purest of intentions, Larry and Bill had unwittingly commandeered a sinking ship. They'd spent more than they'd sold, and whether personal vendettas against Larry factored in or not, distribution was key and non-existent. In the end, Gulf and Western likely used Tumbleweed's inability to generate income as a tax write-off. The Tumbleweed crew scattered. Larry briefly reactivated Tumbleweed in Nashville in the mid-80s and went on to produce country albums. He taught, co-authored a parenting book, and wrote a novel about the music business called Musical Dreams. Bill went on to have a wildly successful career as a producer, most known for his work with the Eagles, first producing 1974's On the Border, and then bringing in Joe Walsh for Hotel California and subsequent albums. He also continued to collaborate with Michael Stanley, who achieved decent success into the MTV years and who still maintains a sizable following in Cleveland, where he works as a classic rock DJ, gigging and touring on weekends. Pete McCabe moved to LA but never quite got his music off the ground. He worked as a graphic artist and now teaches. Arthur G., a self-described lifer, recorded more albums and made his career playing in various bands throughout the years. He retired to Canada and said it's difficult to put a label on his tumbleweed experience. It was totally magical, totally crazy, totally not understandable. Mitch Camp works in consumer electronics. Danny Holian dropped out of the business and moved back to Minnesota to, quote, a farm in the country with some acreage where I can drive a tractor once in a while. Aaron Schumacher, the Grammy-nominated art director, ultimately retired from an advertising career in Florida. Bob Ruttenberg headed to Costa Rica where he and his wife run a wellness retreat. Daniel Mainzer has owned and operated his own photography studio in Ohio since the 80s. And Kunkel, who began his career with a nomadic voyage across Canada, Mexico, and the United States before settling in Colorado, drifted and played music throughout his life most notably as a guitarist in the jazz fusion ensemble Pataphysics. When his wife died, he rounded up their savings and traveled around the world, mourning and searching throughout Mexico, Ireland, and the Canary Islands. He died in California in the late summer of 2015, joining Romero, Collins, and Terry, who'd also passed away over the years. But the period with Tumbleweed remained the cornerstone of his life. It was an absolutely breathtakingly exciting ride as a young man, he revealed just a month shy of his death. He added, I was so pleased that they were ever in existence and that th we were part of it, that when it folded, it didn't matter.
We've compiled several of our favorite tracks from the Tumbleweed years into an anthology. Sing It High, Sing It Low, Tumbleweed Records 1971 to 1973 is available from lightintheattic.net and retailers worldwide. It's also available to stream via Spotify and iTunes Music. This podcast would not have been possible without Sarah Sweeney. Her interviews and liner notes for the anthology provided much of the content for this episode. Thanks also to Michelle Lands, our gracious editor slash producer. And lastly, thanks to Bill Simzik, who granted us an interview. Check out the full version of our chat with Bill on the Light in the Attic blog. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>